0: Hello. <laughs> Welcome to the Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. <laughs> hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hallo und Herzlich Willkommen zu unserem Podcast. I am thrilled to welcome you to the third episode of our December Dickens 2021 series on none other than The Cricket on the Hearth by Charles Dickens, and a reminder that we choose our content and chose our content for this 4th December Dickens series with care, not to show favor to one tradition over another, but to review great literature as just that. Without further ado, The Cricket on the Hearth. This Christmas short story was Dickens' third that he wrote after A Christmas Carol and The Chimes, our first two episodes of the series, according to the Britannico source linked at relevanceofliterature.com notes under the show notes for this episode. Quote, it was written in 1845 but published in 1846, unquote, two years after the last Christmas novella, which we read a few weeks ago. Let's dive into a plot summary. Right off the bat in this short story, short novella, whatever you would like to call it, this is a more energetic, interesting, moving introduction. Our last short novella, Christmas novella, The Chimes, had this dark, strange introduction about what it would be like to sleep in a church and this one right off the bat so energetic really it's not even an introduction in some senses because we just begin right in the middle of a story it's almost like the story's already begun in the narrator without taking us back first <laughs> just dives right in on page one quote the kettle began it don't tell me what mrs perrybingle said i know better Mrs. Peribingle may leave it on record to the end of time that she couldn't say which of them began it, but I say the kettle did. I ought to know, I hope. The kettle began it full five minutes by the little waxy-faced Dutch clock in the corner before the cricket uttered a chirp as if the clock hadn't finished striking and the convulsive little haymaker at the top of it, jerking away right and left with a scythe in front of a Moorish palace, hadn't mowed down half an acre of imaginary grass before the cricket joined in at all." Unquote. So we have this interesting scene with all of these essentially what should be inanimate objects, right? the kettle, the clock, or the cricket, maybe not inanimate, but still not human in that sense. And they're all in this state of activity. And we, again, are entering in right on the scene as these things have already begun. We're not waiting for them to begin. The narrator does in this first chirp of the story, which is what Dickens calls the parts in this short uh, story or short novella. In this first chirp, we do end up going back to before all of this movement begins. The narrator ends up having to backtrack. It's sort of this chaotic, funny mess in the beginning which i love it's this active short story again so we have this introduction the kettle the hearth the house the fire mrs perry bingle bustling about essentially in her homemaking role and in stumbles her husband john who is a carrier someone who is essentially a mailman gets all the packages and people can come pick them up from him and he drives the wagon every which way. Tilly, slow boy, which is who is their nanny and they have a little baby who is uh, quite adorable, makes a few entrances here and there, (laughs) really only as this sort of object of hilarity within the story. And in with John into this bustling domestic scene comes this old stranger. He's actually been forgotten in the cart quite some time by the time that John remembers and comes to get him, and the mysterious old stranger comes in. He has some hearing issues, and he's magical, mystical in a sense. Right away, his sort of cane or walking stick turns into a chair, and There's this sense about him that there's something mysterious going on, something maybe out of the ordinary with this old man, and John has taken to him right away. Dot, however, seems a little bothered by this mysterious stranger. We're not sure. She has kind of a fit in this first part, this first chirp as well. In comes John with his packages. He says hello to Dot and the baby and Tilly and... The old stranger comes in and Mr. Tackleton also visits, who is a toy maker, but he's a sort of evil toy maker and he has the propensity to make all of the good toys into sinister looking toys. So he'll paint, you know, frowns on jack-in-the-boxes and all of this and he ends up visiting to receive a package. and come talk to the couple. He is about to be married and he has quite a younger wife who he's marrying. He's sort of introduced as this figure that Dot and John are not crazy about, they're not very close with this man. He is a bit sinister as well, kind of like his toys, (laughs) and he has this way about him that unsettles Dot and John, and so when he asks Dot to meet with his forthcoming wife, May, she hesitantly agrees. She knows May from school, so there's that equation of helping May out. But the messed up part of this Mr. Tackleton issue is that he sees Dot as the perfect young wife for an older man john is a bit older and she has this bustling picture of dom- d- domesticity about her and yet mr tackleton wants her to meet with may to sort of teach may that propensity so there's this uneasiness unsettling tone already within the story of what is what are mr tackleton's intentions and are they Pure seems like not. Later in the night, John is sitting down before the fire, before the hearth, and he has a vision given by the cricket on the hearth of Dot, many Dots actually, thousands of Dots bustling about the space as always, and then the vision is that she's no longer married to him, but rather married to another man. So, this is a mystical element in this story, a bit less realistic than Dickens' other novels, other short stories, for instance. Um, it's kind of this illusion that takes over John, and we get the sense that it's coming from the cricket on the hearth, whatever kind of fairy, whatever kind of spirit that is, that is also so present and so overtaken in the home. Chirp the Second... We come in on a different scene entirely, still domestic though, with Caleb Plummer, the toy maker, and his daughter Bertha, who also is blind. Caleb has given his daughter the illusion that they live this grand, rich life, that they're very fortunate, they're taken care of, that the boss, Mr. Tackleton, is actually quite nice to them and just humors them and is sarcastic when he's being actually caustic in real life. So he sort of plays on his daughter's disability to deliver her a rose-colored view of the world. And this gets into the representation of disability in general in this particular short story, which is that there's an equation, at least in this first bit here, of physical blindness to mental or emotional blindness and or a lack of wisdom, which is highly problematic to say the least. And Bertha has this very naive, innocent quality about her that is exacerbated by her disability. And she is tenacious, and she's talented. She's a musician. She plays the harp, and she does all of these toys as well, along with her father. So she has this just robust sense of uh, of life and how to live it well, and how to live it fully, and how to love. And yet, there's this impediment that Dickens writes into her character, and doesn't give her a full sense of agency over her own story, over her own learning. And just to exemplify this further, for example, they, Caleb and his daughter, live in this place that's described as a place that would be better off in shambles, better off destroyed, uh, which is a very harsh description, right? And Caleb is telling her, oh, I have this new coat that's so beautiful, it's red, it's this amazing fabric, and people stop me on the street and they compliment my coat and they say, oh, you know, you must be a grand lord or something with a coat like that, and he gives Bertha all of these gifts and he says, oh, the room that we live in is so bright and neat and clean, but Bertha has the education and the senses enough to know that their position is not the way that her father's describing it, and to assume that she would be naive enough to believe that is a misrepresentation of what her actual experience would be like in most cases i understand the period that this is coming out in and the lack of representation of disability in literature in general especially at this time i understand also that this is fiction but i think that it's still important to mention where fiction falls short especially with writers like dickens who are so revered and are so talented and hone their craft their entire lives and are again just so deservant of that praise there are still areas in this fiction that are good to talk about because of possible misrepresentations like this one. So Dot has another freak out after they, Dot and John and Tilly and the baby, come to visit Caleb and Bertha, who are hosting the meeting between Dot and May, who is Mr. Tackleton's future wife. Lot of revolving characters here even in this shorter story dot is a master pipe filler that's one of her domestic qualities and she is filling john's pipe at the end of this meeting and completely botches the job she just could not fill this pipe well or light it well and it's just not a good experience for anyone and dot has this freak out because the old stranger also comes and she is sort of confronted with the old stranger. And at the end of this chirp, Mr Tackleton brings John over to a little uh, cottage or house on the property and shows John through the window that Dot and the stranger are talking and they're very intimate with each other, not in a romantic way per se, but the way that they interact with each other makes them seem more familiar with each other than is appropriate considering that Dot is married and the stranger is new and she helps the stranger put on the old man costume. So he's not an old man after all, he's quite a young lad and it's Obviously, extremely disturbing to John, and Mr. Tackleton is thrilled because he likes to stir trouble, and that is how this chirp ends. In Chirp the Third, we have this really interesting parallelism to the beginning in the way that Dickens narrates this. I'll read from page 34, quote, The Dutch clock in the corner struck ten when the carrier sat down by his fireside so troubled and grief-worn that he seemed to scare the cuckoo, who, having cut his ten melodious announcements as short as possible, plunged back into the Moorish palace again and clapped his little door behind him, as if the unwanted spectacle were too much for his feelings." So again, we have this like personification of this whole scene, which I find so charming and also really plays into the mysticism of these stories in general. All of them have this extra-realistic quality to them, almost like magical realism from later decades, if I come to think of it. Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is a great author to look at for that genre, and there is that kind of extra-realistic quality, as I said, in those works as well from that tradition. So back at home, John and Dot and Tilly and the stranger who is staying at John and Dot's house all are tucking in in their various ways, so to speak. So the stranger goes to his room for the night and Dot hurries upstairs because she recognizes that John is upset and she kind of sees him having a moment and she knows that he must be taking what he saw in there Very seriously, she's clearly upset by this. John has this moment of complete blind anger and he takes the shotgun from the mantelpiece and he is walking to the stranger's bedroom about to kill the stranger. And when he is about to open the door, he runs into Tilly, of course, and he has a moment where he comes back to himself the cricket slash the fairies associated with the cricket talk him down, essentially, and they convince him not to kill the stranger. They convince him to sit down with his feelings and work through them. So John spends the entire night in these fantastical reveries, very, very similar to when the main character in The Chimes, Trotty Vec, wakes up in the church tower and has these visions of these creatures or these little goblins moving all over the place on these bells and being born and being married and dying all over the bells. It's very similar to that where there are these reveries and there are these movements and he sees a lot of time go on at once and it's very chaotic but it also gives... John in this case a time to sit down and reflect and to work through what he saw and what the implications of that are. So while he's up all night, what becomes obvious to the reader is that there's a disconnect between this secret dot that John has stumbled upon and what dot is like in most if not all other cases i.e. at the home as she's been married to him, there have been no signs, no inclinations towards this kind of secretive slash nefarious, perhaps, behavior. And wrapping up the short novella, short story, the stranger whom Dot has had this connection with ends up being Bertha, brother, so this is Caleb Plummer's son, Bertha's brother, from South America, who was previously presumed to be dead. Very similar, might I add, to Mr. Woodcourt from Bleak House, the novel we read together earlier in the year. Mr. Woodcourt, Alan Woodcourt, that is, ends up marrying one of the main characters, one of the narrators, Esther, in Bleak House, but he also has a similar Excursion to South America, he gets shipwrecked, etc., etc. So, this kind of theme of Dickens having characters moving to the Americas, moving to the New World, is very present in his other work. So, Bertha's brother Edward comes back from South America to essentially marry May, who is supposed to be Mr. Tackleton's new bride. And because he'd been presumed dead, of course, May ends up having to move on because of her social status and her dowry and all of this. But she does end up in a happy ending, marrying Edward in the morning. During the morning, she's supposed to be marrying Mr. Tackleton. And they come home, they're celebrating the wedding. Mr. Tackleton ends up repenting and becomes a different man. He even gives May and Edward his wedding cake, for example. I'll read from page 53 right at the end here. Quote, So May and Edward got up amid great applause to dance alone, and Bertha played her liveliest tune. Well, if you'll believe me, they have not been dancing five minutes when suddenly the carrier flings his pipe away, takes Dot round the waist, dashes out into the room and starts off with her, toe and heel, quite wonderfully. Tackleton no sooner sees this than he skims across to Mrs. Fielding, May's mother, takes her round the waist and follows suit. Old Dot no longer sees this, then up he is, all alive, whisks off Mrs. Dot in the middle of the dance and is the foremost there. Caleb no sooner sees this than he clutches Tilly Slowboy by both hands and goes off at score. Miss Slowboy, firm in the belief that diving hotly in among the other couples and effecting any number of concussions with them is your only principle affording it. Hark how the cricket joins the music with its chirp, 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 and how the kettle hums. But what is this? Even as I listen to them blithely and turn towards Dot for one last glimpse of a little figure very pleasant to me, She and the rest have vanished into air, and I am left alone. A cricket sings upon the hearth. A broken child's toy lies upon the ground, and nothing else remains, So there's this kind of creepy ending, almost. That's just so wonderful to me, looking at the difference, how different this short story, short novella is to Dickens' other works. And Again, there's this sort of mysticism about it, this fantastic quality, this extra reality that we have throughout, especially because with the Christmas novels so far, at least, we've had a separate narrator, detached narrator, right? So narrator that looks in on Scrooge, that looks in on Trotty Beck, on Caleb, Plummer, and Dot, and John, and the rest in this short story. And has commentary, has (laughs) jokes oftentimes, and uh, has a separate experience in that sense from the characters in the short story. So this detachment at the end is very critical to understand for the short story in general and how this short story affected readers at the time, right? Because it was not as hard-hitting, not as social heavy on social commentary, for example, is a lot of Dickens' work at this time, especially since this is still early in his career when he's writing different social commentaries, like Oliver Twist. This is shortly after his comedic period at this point with Martin Chuzzlewit, for example. So there's just so much happening in terms of the interplay with this short story and the way that Dickens frames it, especially considering its short length compared to his other works, and the way that he treats the narration as sort of this separate entity from the events of the short story, the way that he gives the narration and the circumstances behind the narration, right? What circumstances are in play that give this narrator the opportunity or the occasion to even comment on (laughs) this weird short story that he pops into, pops into the middle of, right? As we see in the beginning. Um, So he just treats the narrator quite differently than he does, for example, in later works, Bleak House has been on my mind as I've read this particular short story. I think this short story forthcomes and foreshadows Bleak House in a lot of different respects, especially with regard to Dickens's changing treatment of character throughout it. Uh, but in Dickens' later work, such as Bleak House, there's this sense that the omniscient narration, there is humor, there is this kind of independence of the narration, but it's almost like the narrator is fated to tell the story, whereas here the narrator stumbles upon it and it's almost like the narrator chooses to tell the story because he finds it fitting or instructive or in some way notable or valuable to the reader. Christmas. So the question remains with all of these short stories, short novellas or novels, right? What does this short have to do with Christmas specifically? There really isn't, like The Chimes, this short story, The Cricket on the Hearth, really has no direct connection with Christmas. There isn't really a mention of the holiday at all. I mean, even in the chimes, there was sort of the new year, that sort of area happening. But in this one, it's just a wedding. That's that's really what's happening. It's cold, we know. There's some inclination that it might be around this time of year. But it doesn't have anything specifically to do with Christmas, which is interesting, because, right, you would automatically assume that the Christmas short- stories or Christmas novels of Dickens would be somewhat of misnomers, therefore. And for me, the thing that I latch onto time and time again with these short stories is that it's about the spirit, it's about giving joy, transformation. The thematic material, the thematic content is what ties it to the holiday and to the season, not necessarily the overt signs of Christmas trees and church services and all of these other physical, tangible events. It's really about especially transformation is a huge theme throughout the three short stories we've read so far and indeed in moving forward in our December Dickens series for this year. There is this coziness as well that we experience in the short stories and it has to do with mood. The difference between mood and tone in a short story like this one or in really any work of fiction, is that mood has to do with the atmosphere of the short story, how the author characterizes the mood in the world of the short story. So is it tense? Does the narration move really fast, for example? Is there a lot of conflict in it? Those would add to a tense or more active mood. Whereas if it's laid back here, there's a lot of domestic scenes, there's a lot of personification, there's a lot of warm thematic material, the type of word choice that Dickens uses, all of those contribute to a more homely, cozy mood, which of course also attributes itself to the season that we're in, in this short story. And tone is the author's commentary, the author's beliefs, right, on the short story. So that's extra to the story that's outside of the world of the story, which gets complicated because it's really hard to discern tone in a work of fiction unless we have written evidence of what the author is thinking and how they're really trying to think and respond to what they're writing. A lot of tone analysis is just conjecture because we don't know what their opinion is on what they wrote. We don't know their actual views on, for example, what Mrs. Slowboy's clumsiness is supposed to do, right? It, we just, con- it's a conjecture that it's comedic relief and that Dickens's tone is light throughout the short story. So it gets tricky, but the mood in the short story is something we can pin down. It's quite light. It's very humorous. It's very cozy. Chirps. As with the other short Christmas novels, Dickens ends up naming the parts of this uh, particular short novel, Chirps, and in the Chimes, there is another term for the parts in the first Christmas novel, A Christmas Carol. They were in five staves, so he strategically names the organizational parts of these short stories in a really interesting way. and. The question keeps coming up for me as I'm reading, right? What is the utility of being so inventive, so unique about how he names the parts of the stories, right? He could just be classic or (laughs) quite boring and say first part, second part, third part, but no, he has to say chirp the first, chirp the second, chirp the third in this. And part of that, of course, is the spirit, right? He wants to bring us closer as readers to the Christmas spirit, to this light-hearted, silly nature of the piece in general. There's also a sense, at least for me as I was reading, that there's this structural reiteration of the abnormality of the form and content of this short story. So there is, it's so irregular reading this short story and knowing Dickens as well as we do on the show, Dickens writes long-form fiction. That's just such a tenet of his career, of his writing, of his entire collective works, really, and his novels just have the incapability of being longer or being shorter than a couple hundred pages, right? So it's so abnormal already to have this short novel of 50-odd pages and having that being broken up into these three parts and having those parts being named after these silly names staves chirps right there's a subliminal messaging there it's a subversive reminder that this is different this is supposed to be drawing. this is supposed to be i think overall instructive and transformation as a theme of course coming up the whole time along the way transformation One of my questions was, why put the effort into transforming a character, Mr. Tackleton, so late in the game? Mr. Tackleton is, for, so, for my reading and for my intents and purposes here, a not a main character, really a background character in the cast in some sense right he's he's not of equal standing as Caleb Plummer and his daughter Bertha it's not of equal standing as dot and john he's sort of on the level of miss slowboy and it's interesting to me that dickens would put the transformative impact on that character and i think what's effective about it is that we have a sense where we meet Mr. Tackleton so early on in the short, he comes in right in the first chirp into the house and we get a sense of <laughs> how, how much the characters really dislike him as well. And then it's a surprise, at least it was to me at the end, where he completely <laughs> changes. And it's effective because we get mostly the outsider perspective on him no one seems to know him quite well enough to really gauge in reality what he's like. So they just don't like him. He's mean. He's nasty. He's not generous. He is kind of a slave driver in that sense. He wants Caleb and his daughter to work and work and work. So it's, he's not a well-liked or well-received character by any means. So it's surprising at the end when he comes and Dickens invests all of his uh, spiritual energy in a sense to transforming this character and making him the redeeming figure of the story. So finally we get what seems like an insider perspective. After getting this outsider perspective the whole time, we get an insight into his thoughts and into how he's been responding to all of these various events in the short story, especially with regard to May, who was supposed to marry him and ends up marrying someone else. And his response to that is very telling as to what Dickens wants us to get out of the, sh- out of the short story, which is that even the most unlikely people have transformations. Therefore, why shouldn't we? It's a feel-good kind of story. There's so much to talk about with regard to these Christmas shorts. I can't wait to get to the other two with you all. Thank you for being patient with me as I've done all my traveling this month and continue to get these out to you. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season and that you find rest and peace in your time with your families or your time alone, as the case may be